Well, shifting a, a whole lot of gears here. <laughs> uh, we got several questions. We uh, won't be able to get to all of them, and some of them I'll try to summarize and cluster together. Uh, but starting out, a question for all three of you. Uh, what is your favorite book that the other has written? I'll start. Feelings and Faith. I mean, that, that book, I mean, Brian has insight. You know, he just does. The Lord has given him a really good mind and a really good heart. And he has insight on so many things. I haven't read his Ecclesiastes book thoroughly yet, but I've read through it. That too, I mean, it's just amazing. But I think his feelings and faith just helps Christians so much with everyday life and the things they experience with their emotions and their thoughts about God and so on. So I love that book. Jody loves it too. Well, oh, oh, did you have another one? Okay. Um, for for Dr. Beakey, it's, it's hard because there's like 500 books with his name on them. And so, um, but there are some that I, that I find really just convicting. And I would say that if you had to push me to identify one, it would be your book on backsliding. And I have a little old blue copy. And, um, and so I love that. And um, Dr. Ware's books on, um, on open theism um, were fantastic. But if I have to say one from Dr. Ware, it's, it's going to be a toss-up between your contributions in Still Sovereign or Big Truths for Young Hearts. I, we've used that book in chapel at GCA for a number of times. So, And Meet the Puritans, I'm sorry, I didn't mention, I, I wasn't thinking both ways here. Um, my vision was going this way, I'm so sorry, over here. <laughs> but the Meet the Puritans volume is so mm -hmm. helpful on doing just that, so thank you. Yeah, it took away my, my fire here, because I, I, I would say the Still Sovereign book and, and the, the Feelings book, and I was actually talking to you about that, Brian, uh, just yesterday, that the fact that that book has sold so well shows how deep down inside of people, they true Christian really wants a close life with the Lord, and wants to be able to understand their feelings and what faith is and, and all of that. And so that's, that's wonderful because um, I, I think true Christianity does have an experiential relationship with God. Along with a, a book mentioned uh, by Dr. Beakey, uh, this is uh, by a younger person who wrote this. If you could go back and meet one Puritan, which one would you go back and meet? Only one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, it'd be a toss-up between Thomas Goodwin and John Bunyan, but I think maybe John Bunyan would be more fascinating to sit down with. So I'll, I'll go with Bunyan. You guys. Well, if, 
If I could pick, I would actually pick someone that's not technically in the in the Puritan era, but I would say Jonathan Edwards. I would I would think I would have um, really liked to have been a house guest uh, in the Edwards home. You probably would have been more impressed with Sarah when you were there. Probably. <laughs> Just as you were far more impressed with Ariel. <laughs> I knew you'd remember that. <laughs> I think William Perkins, too, as, as the father of Puritanism, who died when he was 44, had written 60-some books, and was a, was a, you know, there's a fascinating story about Perkins that you know, he went to the jail every week to minister to the jailers in the midst of all, or the prisoners in the midst of all his, his, his busyness, and um, a man was climbing the ladder to the scaffold to be beheaded, a criminal, and uh, he looked scared, and Perkins was standing on the bottom. He had pastored him, but there was no fruit. And as the man's going up, he says, um, are, are, are you afraid? He says to the man. The man said, yes. And he said, what are you afraid of? He goes, uh, "Not of, are you afraid of death? And the man goes, no. He said, well, what are you afraid of? He said, I'm afraid of what comes after death. Mm. Come on back down, man, he says. And um, Samuel Clark tells this wonderful story that the man got down and knelt beside Perkins, and Perkins put his arm around his shoulders and began to pray about the sinfulness of sin until the man's eyes were just gushing out with tears over all his sins. And as Perkins felt the man really feeling the depth of his sin, he began to preach about the fullness of Christ mm. and the red crimson tide of his blood. And, and the man began to weep and weep and weep over his sins being forgiven in Christ. And he walked back up the ladder, and he asked to, the guy was going to cut off his head if he could have a minute to speak to the crowd. And he turned to them and he said, you need to be saved just as I have been saved. <laughs> That's Perkins. Yeah. So we, we actually just reprinted. This is really... Oh, I wasn't going to try to sell it. But it's in my blood. Forgive me. So, you know, we, ha we have in our library, we have the three original volumes of Perkins in 1609, and Charles Spurgeon owned them. He's got his seal in the front of them, and his widow sold them to A.W. Pink, and A.W. Pink has all his handwritten notes in it, and it's, it's under glass, and it's really very special. But we took that. Can you, can you imagine the Reformed faith without Calvin's commentaries or Calvin's institutes? And yet... All these years, all these years, William Perkins, the father of the whole movement, has never been reprinted. So we did it in 10 volumes. It took 10 years, and that's, that's all done now. But it's, uh, it's just, it was so rewarding. It's one of those projects that you think when you start, you'll be so glad when you see the end of. But when you're done with it, it's kind of like, I wish there were 10 more volumes to do. You know, it's so, it's so rich material. And he died when he was 44. Amazing. Well, one of the wonderful things was uh, when I graduated from PRTS, the 10-volume set was a gift. Did you know they were giving those away to the students? I was the one that said to give them to you. Oh, okay. Well, thank you. <laughs> That's a really belated thanks, Brian. <laughs> actually, actually, I need to, I need to I'm, I'm going to reverse that now. 
Brian Borgman is the only student we've ever had in the history of our school who made a special trip. After he graduated, he made a special trip to Grand Rapids to come personally to me and thank me for the training he had at our school. He was so grateful. True, Brian? Uh, what do you wish you knew and put into practice when you were first started your ministry that you know now? So if you could go back and talk to younger you, what would you say? Don't be so uptight. I would also, if, if I could talk to a younger me, I would say, don't be so uptight. I would say, um, be, be more um, gracious and Christ-centered in your preaching. And um, the fact that all of these people are here after all these years um, is an, a, just an amazing thing to me because I look back and I think, why would anybody have listened to me? And, um, and so, more gracious, more Christ-centered, and the list could go on, but I'll stop there. I think I would say, um, try not to care what your peers think except when they're right about you. You know, I mean, so you ought to listen. But really don't, don't care uh, about their opinions on things. Care what God thinks. Be, be a, a, a man who fears the Lord, not fears men. And uh, I just think it's so easy to get caught up with um, comparisons and comments that people make and all kinds of things like that that just real, really are ego, either deflating or ego-building type things, which is really not what it's about. He must increase, I must decrease. So, you know, just really um, care what God thinks. And you only care what people think, in, in, you know, because through that, many times, you learn things about what God thinks through, through what they think. But honestly, it's not their opinion per se. It's what God thinks. That's very good, yeah. Uh, well, there's several things. I guess if I had to pick just one, uh, I think God really had to break me and empty me to uh, build a pastoral heart in me. But I wish I had the pastoral love for my people I have now. I wish I had it at the beginning. Yeah. We often think of the ministry of the word uh, in the way that it's preached on the Lord's Day and then the way it's implemented in daily reading. What are some of the other ways in which the Word of God should infiltrate and influence personal life and church life? Maybe in some unexpected ways or ways we don't tend to think of. For anybody. Can you read that question once more? Uh, we often think of ministry of the Word specifically with it being preached on Sundays or in our daily reading. Apart from those two instances, how else does the Word of God influence and transform our life? 
the word of God sustains you uh, in suffering, sometimes just in very, very unexpected ways. And so the, the, the morning that I had brain surgery, I woke up, woke up hours before everybody else, and I just started pouring through the Psalms. And I started writing Psalms down on the, the hotel pad of paper and uh, about God knowing when I lie down and that he'll be there when I wake up. And, and I wrote those texts down, and I stuck them in my pocket and uh, went to the hospital. And then eight or nine days later, when I got out of the hospital, I put those pants on to go home and pulled those texts out. And those passages were absolutely precious to me. I couldn't plan that. That was just the ministry of the word by God through his spirit to me. Um, I, f I find it so encouraging in conversation with others and sometimes uh, being in, in places where we're praying together when scripture peppers their, either their conversation or their prayer. It, it just you know, draws your attention to rich and, and important biblical truths that are informing how they're telling you about something or how they're bringing their prayer to the Lord. But I think those are two contexts. I mean, I, I wish our conversations with one another had more scripture in it, just as a general rule, you know, that we would help remind each other of things that we know, at least we hope we, hope we know, you know, that they can um, be brought to bear on certain situations. So that's something. Yeah, I was going to say prayer, too. I, I really admire, I have, I have a colleague who just... Uh, his prayers are just almost unending scripture back to God. It's just so reverent, so impressive. I keep behind my study chair in my library wall there about 12 prayer books by different forefathers, like the prayers of Spurgeon, prayers of William J., prayers of Edward Bickerstaff. When I get really tired of my own prayers and feel really kind of prayerless, I just pick out one of those books and just read it for 10, 15 minutes what I've noticed over and over and over again is that most of those books are just scriptural quotations. They, our forefathers really prayed the scriptures back to God. And God is tender of his own handwritings, the Puritans would say. He loves to see his own handwriting come back to him. Secondly, I would say memorization. Um, I wish I was still doing this, but at, when I was a teenager for about five years, Every night when I did my daily devotions, I'd pick out one verse to memorize. I'd put it on a 3 by 5 index card. I'd slip it in the front right pocket of the pants I was going to wear the next day. I think better at night than in the morning. And uh, I'd memorize that on the way to school or to work and try to let that be my meditation throughout the day on that text. I had some sweet times with that. Uh, memorization is so good for the soul. And then thirdly, uh, no one has said something about, the, well, you did a little bit, Brian, but uh, I, think, I think God has a way, without being mystical, without being, you know, saying this is better than other scriptures, but God has a way, when we're in real need, to take the particular scripture that could help us more than any other scripture in the Bible, 
And I, I, I'm personally convinced it has something to do with the illumination of the Holy Spirit that you talked about. That he illuminates your mind on that particular text and speaks it somehow with power to your heart. And you say, this is exactly what I needed. It is absolutely perfect. And that text becomes exceedingly precious to you for the rest of your life. So one time when my daughter um, sensed that something was kind of wrong with me, there were some church troubles, and we always made it a principle never to speak one bad word about the church in front of our kids, ever. But she picked up something was wrong. She asked me, and I said, well, I'm just going through a few difficult things. And she, she walked out of the room. She's a very tender girl. But the next morning, she had seven eight-and-a-half by 11 sheets hanging from the doorpost where I would walk into the kitchen, and they were all taped together. And each one of those sheets, she had one of those special, special promises that God had used in my life. She remembered it from family worship. And it just broke me. It just, and in fact, I kept them up there until the next company came over. I think it was almost a week. So every day I'd have to go through those seven texts. And, uh, but, you know, when God makes a text very precious to you, you know, milk it for what it's worth. Just let it comfort you all the time. Uh, one of them is all things work together for good to them that love God. I can't tell you how many times I've been in a time where I think, how, oh, no, how am I going to get through this? How am I going to get through this? And that text comes back to mind. I say, God's going to work it for good. I have no idea how. He's going to work it for good. And it gives you strength to keep on going. So personal texts are a wonderful way to, to be buttressed in the Word of God. Kind of going along with that. Uh, seeing the importance of the role of the word in the Christian life, what are some subtle, uh, maybe unexpected ways that the word is undermined in the Christian life that we should be mindful of guarding against? I got one that's a pet peeve for me right away. I do not appreciate it when people joke about anything in the Bible. Certain things are really off limits, right? Joking about anything related to Jesus. But I don't even like it when they make jokes about Abraham or David. I don't think it's befitting for a Christian. The Bible has a sobriety, a beauty about it. And I think it makes the Bible more banal. And I know they mean well, but um, can you see Jonathan Edwards joking about a text in the Bible? I, I, just, I just can't see it. You, you know... Our godly forefathers took the Bible very, very seriously. And, and, and connected with that sometimes is Christians who've been delivered from great sins of the past, almost joking about their sins of the past. Oh, come on. I, I'm glad you're forgiven, but you don't joke about it. This was a solemn thing that you fell into those deep sins. So let's be sober about the great scriptures. <laughs> And not belittle them with, 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 with humor. Well, you th I'm, I'm thinking of kind of two opposite poles here. Of the qu question meaning, what, what can di diminish our attention to the Bible? Is that, or ways in which it can be undermined in the Christian life? Because yeah. we often can identify um, ways in which liberal yeah. sections are doing it, but there's right, subtle ways right. in our life that can be happening. So, I mean, in our day-to-day, -day, you know, experience and feelings become dominant. And uh, so there is, it's not just with charismatics, it's a whole bunch of people who may, may or may not be involved in the charismatic movement where experience 
just dominates them in terms of how they assess just about everything. They, they run it through the filter of their own experience and their own feelings about things, how they kind of tend to assess things. And sadly, I think in most of those cases, the way they assess things and their feelings about things have not been informed well by the Bible previously. And so, you know, they're not thinking rightly. They're not feeling rightly about these things. And they, but they become the standard. So I become the standard, and that, that supplants the Bible. But then on the other side, there's kind of a rationalistic side to this as well. It's the studied uh, um, sort of supplanting of the Bible by other intellectual pursuits. And they may even be theological, historical pursuits, but you lose attention to the text itself you know, in this. And so you may be an expert in something in church history or whatever the case might be, but you, you really don't know your Bible or you're not, you're not making the Bible central in what you do. So at least I, I see those two very different ways in which it could happen with people like us. I think one of the ways we undermine um, the authority of Scripture in, in our lives, in the life of the church, is when we, when we are assessing maybe what's wrong with me or what's wrong with my marriage and everything is governed by psychologized categories so that we're not even talking about biblical truth anymore. We're running, we're running everything, all of our problems, you know, whether it's marriage or family or pain and suffering, whatever it is, and we run it through these psychologized categories and then we start looking, um, we start looking to remedies that are then psychologized remedies. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of good things that God in his common grace allows to happen for people that are struggling with things. But um, when I hear Christians say, well, I just, I needed to learn to love me or I needed to learn to forgive me, or, you know, all of those kinds of things. That's not helpful. God's taken completely out of the equation. And at the end of the day, there's no, there's no soundness in the remedy, right? The remedy is in, in Christ and in his word. So, yeah, I'm picking up on, I think, both of what, what you're both saying. If you look at back at the Reformers and the Puritans, they used the word experimental and experiential a lot. Even Kelvin used both. But the interesting thing is they distinguish between experientialism, which is experience for its own sake, to say you had the experience and you become quite a Christian with your experiences, and experiential theology. And what I see happening in some circles today, Reform circles, is we want to avoid experientialism where the experience becomes the God, and so you impugn all kinds of spiritual, genuine experience. The Christian religion is a religion that is experienced, but Jared Packer put it so well when he was talking about the Puritans. He said some people think they were just introspective navel gazers, but he said actually what they were doing is, at least most of them, there's a few that maybe got carried away a little bit, but most of them we're trying to trace out the work of the Holy Spirit in their own souls so that they could give glory to God. And that's a very legitimate use of experience, right? 
so that you see God's hand at work in your life and you give glory to God. So in true experiential theology, your experiential subjective reality of the consciousness of God is built on objective truth. And God stays God, and your experience is subservient to his glory. And that's, there's a, that's, a, that's a subtle line of difference, but it's huge. Avoid experientialism, but don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Shifting gears a little bit, we've got lots of questions uh, around family worship. So, Dr. Peek, will aim this. I'll try to cluster five of them together. Uh, they all have to do with kind of roadblocks or difficulties um, getting encountered. So one would be grandparents trying to influence their grandkids. What would be wise ways of doing that? Um, in what way can a wife help a husband who struggles to do family worship? How can she encourage him? Um, what about step-parents? Um, what about, which one was it? Well, we'll just start, I guess, with those three. So the distance of grandparents, if there's not a, a, if there's a man in the home who's not willing to lead it or struggles to, single moms. Yeah, yeah. How do you encourage those folks? Yeah, so single moms. I always say to them, just, just, just take the roles. If you, you, you know, you take, you're, in, you're in the lead. You're in the lead now. So, uh, for example, even when I would go do a conference somewhere, my wife would just take over the leadership of the family worship and do what I did. And if it's hard on a single mom, have the pastor come over and model it for her in front of the, the children, and then she takes over from there. And uh, grandparents, you said, okay. You said grandparents that are distance away? Well, you know, just trying to, how, how do they, I guess, try to help with an influence on the grandkids? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you got like three different categories here. You got the grandparents who happily have children who long for you to actually, when, when you come over for a meal, to, to lead the devotions and say, Dad, would you do it? And you gladly do it. And it's wonderful. Um, that's easy. Um, and then you've got the other situation where they're not so happy. Maybe they're not totally irreligious, but but then I would just go to children and say, "Do you mind? Do you, I, I don't want to trample on your your territory, but do you mind if when we come over that we do have opportunity to talk to the kids about about God? Are you okay with that?" It's the difficult one is when 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 the, when the kids don't want you to talk to them at all. That's really tough. Um, but there are little ways when you have the kids over, maybe you can you can say, well, okay, you're in grandma's house now, so we're going to pray for this meal, you know, that type of thing. And, and I think, as my dad used to say, there comes a point, even with rebellious teens, but that can be with rebellious adult children who have rebellious children, where he used to say this, you can get yourself in a position in life, sadly, but that's what it comes to, is where you need to talk to God more about them than you do to them about God. Mm. It doesn't help to force things and, 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 and cut off all ties. Uh, it's better to be compassionate and kind, show with your walk of life, Christianity, uh, and uh, just keep praying, keep praying. Step-parents. Any uniqueness to that situation? 
specifically maybe a stepdad trying to yeah well that, that's a whole counseling situation where you really have to you really have to talk to the stepdad about being careful not to come across for example harsher than his wife <laughs> in, in in raising the kids and um you need to work that out carefully between the stepdad with with the mother but i think as a general rule when things are healthy when it's not dysfunctional i think the stepdad takes the place of the dad and then um i guess how could a wife help encourage her husband towards faithfulness and yeah oh big ways i mean my wife did it all the time from the beginning uh, often when I'd ask a question, like even from the family worship Bible guide, and no one jumps in with the answer right away. My wife would jump in with an answer and get the ball rolling. That, I mean, that's great. That's great. Did she get it right? <laughs> I, no. It's so, so we, we don't have many disagreements. We never argue. <laughs> I'm serious. We never argue. But we don't have many disagreements. But when we do have a disagreement on something, I tell her, 90% of the time you're right. <laughs> that, that, seems to, that seems to work well. <laughs> no, there are more ways, though, that a, that a woman can help. Um, you know, as a man, sometimes you can feel pretty discouraged, and you just, you're just not up to it, you know. And, and as a minister, too, when you preach, um, I have it at least four or five times a year where I just, I, I do anything to run away from the pulpit. I don't feel like I'm really totally ready or something. I just, who am I? Who am I to be the mouthpiece of God? Who am I to lead my family? Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? And uh, my wife would just encourage me. And, and I think that's what you got to do. Or I say, you know, that was really a terrible family worship today. And she'll go, honey, they can't all be your best. It's, it's, it's okay. It's okay. God knows. So I just say, Lord, forgive me and help me do better tomorrow. Right? But when I go to preach, she can sense it. And this is, this is, really, this is really a wonderful example of what she means to me. So we're traveling along. She says, you've got it again, don't you? And I go, yeah, yeah. Honey, she'd go like this. She'd put her hand on my wrist. She'd go, the Lord will help you. One more time. One more time. I go, oh, yeah, one more time. And even when I'm at the bottom of the pulpit, I'm thinking, one more time. Lord, one more time, help me. And it gives you courage to go on. So, and you can, vice versa, you can help each other in all of your life's struggles and trials. It's a wonderful thing. I, I think maybe the question, too, is dealing with maybe like passive husbands that, that aren't taking the lead in family worship um, they're lazy or or they feel like the wife knows more of the Bible than they do um, and I would I would say that there are probably many times where the wife does more know more of the Bible than the husband and the wife needs to in in humility encourage her husband even if he cannot do as good of a job as as she could um, but um, trying to nag him into leading family worship probably is not very effective 
And, um, and so I think that, um, I mean, my view is, is that we have a, an epidemic of passive husbands that won't, that won't lead for fear of being seen as domineering or whatever, tyrannical or, and, and of course, tyranny and leadership are not the same thing. And so I think a lot of wives struggle under, uh, under the burden of a passive husband. And so if you're a passive husband, you need to repent and you need to actually seek the Lord and put your big boy pants on and be a man. Okay. And in the words of Don Strachan and um, Forrest Gump, that's all I have to say about that. But there's also another situation when, when the big boy has, has got to get, what would you say, his pants on? <laughs> The, the, big, the, big boy, the big boy is not a Christian and is hostile to Christianity. And the, and the mother comes to you. I've had to work with a couple of cases like this and say, you know, he's really opposed. He's opposed to me doing family worship. And I said, really? Is he really opposed to you? Well, uh, doing it at all. Like, could you, could you do just a minute or so in the morning or in the evening with, with the kids? And Well, sometimes they try to ask him, and he, he will allow it. Um, and then there's some that will say, oh, yeah, you can do anything you want with family worship. Just don't include me. Uh, those are very difficult situations. But then I, I say to them, well, it's still important. Most important thing is that it does get done. So still do it, even if your husband won't involve himself. But try, do it for a month and, and try to make it an encouraging thing in the family. And then just ask him, you know, it would be, mean so meaningful to me if you would at least just read you know, five verses in the chapter together with the children. Maybe you can get them reading the Bible, just one baby step at a time. Pretty soon. Just, just say a small prayer, honey, even if it's two sentences, you know? Try to, try to build it back into them. That's the alternative method of what I was talking about, but that works too. <laughs> um, what has been the biggest struggle in your own family worship times? Just thinking back, either was it with little kids or currently, or I think a lot of folks um, are just face to face with their own struggles and hearing maybe like, oh, I'm not the only one who the kids turn pagan when we try to sit them down. We we I, I think one of the biggest struggles we had in family worship was that we had this this cat that was demon possessed, <laughs> and. It would just walk in during family worship and do incredibly rude things that got the kids laughing in family worship. And um, Pastor Robert Elliott can tell you more about, about that because the cat was rude to him on his lap. So, um, But I think distractions, distractions, right? One of the kids finds something funny. And even if they're trying hard to behave, it, it becomes almost insurmountable to try to get them back on the track. And maybe at that point you, you close in prayer for the day. I don't know. Yeah, for us, I think we did uh, much better uh, when the kids were young. 
as, as opposed to as they got older and there's more activities and things and um, it's not quite the same as distractions. It's just all, uh, other things going on in their lives. So to pull people together at the same time to do this and she's gone to this or you know whatever the case might be. So I think that becomes harder as you get older. I, I am amazed if, if in fact your family that you grew up in and then your own family as you raise them as the father um, I mean, you said every day many times, every day. We did not do every day. And uh, I, I don't know how you would, to be honest with you. But uh, it's... Well, in Dutch tradition, yeah. you, uh, you pray before the meal, you pray after the meal. So there's six prayers a day. And you also read the Bible before the second prayer um, three times a day. So those are all mini, mini family worships. But you don't sing. Uh, that's, what, that's the way most Dutch families grew up. So we were used to that. But on the Sunday evening, my dad did this extra real family worship. And what happened when, when our oldest was three years old, I had to do a talk on family worship for a conference in South Africa. That's when I first discovered what the Scottish divines did and the Puritans, that they had a prolonged family worship, and the father spoke every day to the children, and they sang at the end. So Calvin was three years old when I discovered that. So I, I went to Mary and said, we've got to change our family worship, and we do it. Actually, I say every day, but on, on Sunday, we're so, we have three services a day, and we're so packed all day long on Sunday that we don't do the, uh, the further instruction. We might read the, the, um, we might read the, the, the question in the family worship, but give it a quick, brief answer and then a shorter prayer because we've got to run, rush off to church again. And we figure, like, well, the whole church service is a big family worship, so maybe Sunday we'll actually do a little less. But um, So that just becomes a, 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 way of, a way of life. And so it's like brushing your teeth. You just, I mean, you do it every day, right? You don't think about whether to do it or not. So, But that's so what As the kids got older and some had to be gone during that time, you would still... Have oh, it. Oh, absolutely. Oh, I see. Okay. Oh, yeah. But then what I regret not doing is when they came home late at night, I, I regret not taking them aside and doing a private one. Yeah. I, I think that would have been, I think that was a mistake on my part, but, yeah. Uh, one more, I think, on family worship. How do you handle either older kids or other extended family that view family worship um, as nothing more than shoving the Bible down your kids' throats. Yeah, I, I get that question quite often. I think it's very real in many families, especially if the family's never done family worship before. It's hard to begin. So it's like other, other good things in life. You begin very, very small. Begin with a one-minute family worship. <laughs> just maybe read two or three verses and, and, and maybe not sing and just have a short prayer and and just tell the children, I've, I've, I've been, I've, I'm wrong. I just really appreciate your cooperation here. And, and you just start building it up slowly. I mean, if a child gets really belligerent, you might have to come. But I would say it with a kind voice. Look, son, this is very important um, to me. I've been convicted. I've done what's wrong. You are living in our house. And we're giving you a bedroom. And we're giving you meals. And... And just please cooperate on this, and uh, maybe one day the Lord will work in your heart in such a way that you'll be very grateful we have these little family worships. I, I promise I won't do them too long to 
to, to bore you or, or you, know, you know, just talk nicely to them and try to persuade them. Uh, two, well, two more questions. Uh, one would be, I guess it's a two-parter. So three. How does a Christian live, this is by a young person, how does a Christian live in the world and is not of the world? Um, and then the follow-up to that, is it within the realm of being a Christian, could you be a professional athlete? So you can see where they're kind of going with that. Could I be a professional athlete? <laughs> sure. Yeah, if, you want, if that's how you want to take it. <laughs> I mean, maybe, In theory. curling is a sport, so maybe. <laughs> see, that, that idea, that, that tension of being in but not of and then specifically applied to athletics. Yeah, well, a, cu- a couple thoughts. One is that um, you can't help but be in the world. I mean, the, you know, the fundamentalists of the 19, late 1920s through the 1960s really blew it. Uh, Carl Henry called their attention to that uh, in his uh, 1947 track. Um, now, what was the title of it? Uneasy, Uneasy Conscience. Thank you, Brian, of, of, uh, of fundamentalism. And um, you, don't, you don't want to have a subculture that is just totally isolated. You want to have an impact in the world. So to be in the world but not of the world means that you are um, in the world as a Christian. So you really have to have strong convictions about being a genuine Christian, know, knowing the truths of God's word, uh, having a close relationship with him, uh, pursuing him every day. So, have, you know, living a life that is devoted to Christ and following him faithfully, but then realizing that God calls you to be a witness out there in the world. So you have contact with unbelievers and you in the workplace, in your school, whatever the case might be. Uh, you, you endeavor to represent Christ, which really is uh, part of what, it means to be made in the image of God and remade in the image of Christ is not only who we are, but how we live with each other is representing Christ. So just think of yourself out there as an ambassador. Hmm, I wonder if that's in the Bible, uh, you know, or a, a representative of Christ and, uh, and realize to do that, you have to be a person who um, lives consistently with, I mean, not that we don't ever sin, but fundamentally um, owns that as your way of life, and that's what you want to live out before others. Well, I'll talk about um, the athlete part for obvious reasons. <laughs> now, um, I, know, I know that there are, there are many, many um, Christians who are professional athletes. And I would not um, diminish their, the, the genuineness of their conversion or call into question the authenticity of their, of their sincerity in following the Lord. Um, and, and, and I know, uh, for instance, there are, there are many, many Christians on the San Francisco Giants. Um, <laughs> It's really soccer that you have to worry about because only pagans play soccer. So, um, but 
in all seriousness, um, and, and, and a lot of those guys end up having really good influence on other players, and, and, and I understand that. Um, for me personally, and it's not that this is a, a, a real issue, but for me personally, I don't, I don't really know how uh, a Christian could in good conscience um, constantly throughout their season um, play on the Lord's Day, Lord's Day after Lord's Day after Lord's Day. And uh, so many of you remember Pastor Ashiel Blaze. His son Glenn um, became a, uh, was, was actually, um, uh, was recruited for a professional rugby team. And when he signed, he actually had it in his contract that he would not play on the Lord's Day. Mm. Now, he was, now, he was good enough that the team was willing to make that concession. Um, I don't know many teams that would be willing to make that concession, especially if you were a football player and when your games are only on the Lord's Day. Um, but I, I, I honestly would, would really s struggle with that. Uh, and again, it's not to disparage any professional athlete who professes faith. I'm just saying that I think it's a, it would be a, a terrible issue of conscience. So, Yeah, a couple of things to say. One is um, my dad used to say to us when we, were de we debated like wh whether we should do something or not that maybe it was associated with some worldly people or something. He'd say, especially after like 14, 15, when we, he wanted to form our conscience to make our own decisions. He'd say, go into your bedroom, get down on your knees, and ask God if what you're about to do can glorify him. And uh, actually, we were more conservative than my dad sometimes because our conscience would speak, you know. Oh. So, but I, th I found that extremely helpful as a young man. Uh, secondly, when it comes to, I, I, I'm by no means, haven't been a professional athlete, but in fifth grade, sixth grade, I had a brother three years older, six years older than me. They wouldn't let me play with him if I wasn't really good at sports. And we were lived in the city. We had no chores. I come home from school. I make sure all my homework was done at school. I come home and I just play ball all by myself. Whoops. I play ball all by myself, especially basketball. I'd shoot 500 free throws. So by the time I was in seventh grade, I begged my parents if I could go out for um, a regular, the, the team, because I was in a public school. And they, they said no to my older brother. And uh, I kept begging them. And so... Uh, Finally, finally, they relinquished and said I could go out for one sport. And then I continued for f three more years, but I got, I got saved in the summer after ninth grade, going to 10th grade. But I played ball again in 10th grade for, th for the high school of 2,000 students. And when I got to 11th grade, I was uh, a first-string starter on basketball. And um, the big game was coming, the game that I dreamed of literally many times. Kalamazoo Central versus Kalamazoo Norks, renting Western Michigan University gym, 15,000 fans, and the coach was going to come out to watch me and my closest friend play to see if maybe he would offer us scholarships for college. Meanwhile, I was saved, and I was feeling called to the ministry. So what do I do? I came in all kinds of angst for two reasons. Number one was pride. I was getting, I was pretty proud of how I was doing, and, then, and I realized that wasn't Christian. And number two, I felt called to the ministry. And if you go to college, you got to play three, four hours a day 
and, and you can't focus on theology books and stuff like that. And so um, the morning, the morning of the, the big game that I looked forward to for six years, I just went to the coach, secular coach, atheist, and I just told him, and I'm just telling you right now, I said, coach, I can't go on. I've got to give up. I can't, I can't do this. It's giving me too much pride, and it's going to get in the way of, if, if they offer me a college scholarship, I, I know my inclination is to be accepted, and I'm going to get sucked in. And So I'm not saying that other people can't play organized sports as a Christian. I'm just saying know thyself, right? Know your own weaknesses. What might be okay for someone else to do is not okay for me, vice versa, uh, in some of these areas. But the world is very, it sucks you in. And once you get committed to something like that, it takes, it takes a huge chunk of your life. So what did I do? I still play ball, but I play ball with my friends. I had a lot more fun with a lot less pressure. The pride factor was gone. And you had good workouts, good exercise, and it was very enjoyable. So I just gave up my idol. Uh, last question, I guess you could take it in one of two parts. How do you develop uh, a love of reading in your kids? And if someone's new to the Puritans, where do you start them? I know Dr. Beaky won't like this question at all, so we'll start over here. <laughs> How do you develop love of reading in your kids? Well, I mean, you know, I hear p people ask that question and... Okay, so the fact is, is that you can read to your kids, you should read to your kids, and hopefully in reading to your kids, they'll develop a love for reading. But it is very possible to read to your kids and for them to still not like to read, okay? So all of us have, ha have kids that didn't like to read, and then we had kids that loved to read. And so if you, if you have that, here's, here's your solace. Take no credit, take no blame. Um, you know, but if you, if you have a kid that, that actually shows interest in reading, buy them any book they want and continue to give them books. And, but it's, it, I think it does start with, with reading, uh, to your kids. Um, and if somebody was to ask me who would I think is the best Puritan to start with, is that sort of the question? Um, so Charlie, um, Charlie, who did you say the other day you thought was the 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 easiest Puritan? Did you say Richard Sibbs? Who? Okay. So I I don't know that Goodwin is is easy to read. Um, <laughs> That's the top of the line. <laughs> Yeah, I, I wouldn't put, but Charlie's super smart, That's so, true. you know, but um, I would say if somebody really wanted to start reading the Puritans, um, and, they, and they wanted to read the Puritans, not just about the Puritans, I would say that, um, that Thomas Watson, in my opinion, is, is the place to start, um, and he has so, the art of contentment, um, heaven taken by storm, uh, just so many, uh, all things for good, the little Puritan paperback. Uh, I think Watson, he's, he's pithy. Uh -huh. He's incredibly quotable. He's unbelievably edifying. 
and um, Ariel and yeah, short sentences. And uh, Ariel and I actually um, um, plotted through for a few weeks in uh, in Watson's Art of Contentment, just reading a page or two at a time. And he's just very edifying. So I'd say, I'd say Watson. Well, I I don't know. I, I probably read more of Thomas Brooks, and I don't know in terms of with your kids, I don't know what, what would be easiest reading because he's not easy reading, um, but he's so very insightful and edifying. So I really have appreciated him the most, I think. Um, in t- on the early question of, of encouraging your kids to read, uh, we found at least with, uh, with our first daughter in particular that just helping her read early was so good because then they catch on you know, early and they have more time with you to cultivate it and get going in it and uh, I remember when Bethany was just you know still pretty little one year older thereabouts I I put these magnetic letters on the refrigerator next to where we sat her on the counter for her snack before she went to bed and uh, find an A you know find a B so I mean just started at the most basic and boy she was reading in no time so it's just uh I think it, if you encourage your kids to read early, uh, they'll more likely become uh, avid readers. I think that is the case. And, uh, but then the reading to them, I think that also is a big help. Yep. Yeah, we, we had one child out of the three that just read all the time. And she's sitting in, a, in the chair, and she'd have a pile of books. She'd finish one, she'd put it over there, take, just take the next one. And, uh, but that child... We actually thought she had a handicap in learning, in speaking, because she, she didn't talk until she was like four years old. Just had her brother do all her talking for her, her older brother. So we were worried about her intellectual ability. But once she got into books, she became a straight-A student. It was amazing. So books can really help, help your children as well. Uh, two quick things. One is uh, everything you guys said was true, but I want to add one detail. Just be very excited yourself about books and talk about books around the dinner table and stuff like that. And take your kids to the bookstore and sit down on the floor with them and, and go over different books. And, and I'm doing this with the grandchildren now. It is so much fun, so much fun. I buy crazy amount of, amount of books for them. But, you know, and they're so excited to go with me. So it, it, it's great. It's great. Um, in terms of reading the Puritans, I'll just say one thing. The Puritan Treasures for Today, I mentioned this already, but Puritan Treasures for Today is the best way to get teenagers into reading the Puritans because every sentence is edited. There are no antiquated words at all. And you have, it's amazing. These guys can do this. We got three guys that do it so well. Nothing of the substance is lost. So if they start reading four or five of those 16 books we have of Puritan treasures for today, like one, Stop Loving the World by Greenhill or Triumphing Over Sinful Fear by John Flavel, those teenagers will resonate with it and they'll recognize themselves that these books have no fluff in it. This is really substantive. And then introduce them to Thomas Watson. And then I would go to John Flavo and, and um, I, w- I would go to John Bunyan. And then John Brooks. John Brooks is the middle of the road. And then I'd work, have them work their way up to, uh, to uh, John Owen and, and, and Thomas Goodwin. Now my son came home from the bookstore one day. He worked for our bookstore. He was 13 years old. He said, Dad, who do you think my favorite writer is? I said, I don't know. He said, John Owen. I said, John Owen? 
At 13 years of age? He said, yeah. I said, don't you find him difficult? Oh, no, he's easy, he said. I thought, what? What are you talking about? But here's what happened. You see, we have an advantage. This is not saying you have to do this. But we have an advantage because we still use the King James Bible. We use the old language. He gets it at the Christian school. He gets it from the pulpit in church. He gets it at home. So these, these thou wouldst, thou couldst, our kids have no trouble with those at all. But when, you, when your kids aren't used to the old language, then for sure you've got to go back to the Puritan treasures for today and start them out with regular language. And, and work. But they can work their way up. They can work their way up. Who's your favorite Puritan? I'm with Roger. Thomas Watson. Thomas Watson. Yeah. yeah. Well, I hope that uh, discussion was edifying. If we didn't get to your question um we just we had a huge stack here and so anyway tomorrow morning we'll start at nine o'clock who's on up tomorrow morning at nine okay 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 on what (laughs) tomorrow morning i'm going to be preaching from proverbs for the sunday school class i'm going to be teaching from Proverbs 23, walking our way through that chapter on six ways of building godly convictions inside of your children. Mm. And then I'm preaching after that, I think, on, 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 on um, how to build a godly marriage. Mm. And then in the PM, you'll do the sufficiency of Scripture. So tomorrow is going to be a full day. Also in the second service in the afternoon, we will be uh, observing uh, the Lord's table. And so if you are visiting with us um, you, um, and you plan on partaking of the Lord's Supper, you need to be a member in good standing in a good Bible-believing church. And so um, if you're under church discipline, let us know, please, before we uh, administer the supper. All right? Um, I know that sounds like a strange announcement to some of you, but it's an announcement that we should make more commonly, right? All right. Well, Daniel, you want to close us in prayer? You're such a gifted moderator that, um, and movie maker. That was, that was really good. Those, uh, the, 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 the fat pictures at the beginning are unforgivable, but, um, but we can move on in our relationship. So I still have a job here. Good. (laughs) Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you for lavishing your kindness and your grace upon us. Not in accordance with our deserving, but even in light of our ill-deserving, you delight to bless your people. And we thank you that you hear our prayers and that you are faithful in your covenant love. And while we are fickle and often go astray, you you do not. And so we thank you for your faithfulness with regards to this uh, local church, and we pray that we would continue to strive after you, that we pray that we treasure your word more than we do, that we would um, be transformed by it. We pray even now that you prepare our hearts to receive and be transformed by your word tomorrow, and as we look forward to celebrating um, our Savior who is put to death on our behalf and then raised again, that our hearts would just love him and that we would trust him 
even more than we do. We pray this in his name. Amen.